Um, and let's just start out uh, again, but a warm welcome to everyone. Some people have come a long distance to be here today, and it's great that you all are able to be here. And this class is on identity, uh, and I will be speaking really for the next six to eight weeks on identity in light of the fourth chapter of Romans. And today the theme is social class and how social class uh, is an aspect of human identity and what uh, this profound insight in uh, St. Paul's letter to the Romans uh, says about identity in light of the category of social class. Uh, let's read together the prayer at the top of the handout that is so, um, such a beautiful prayer. Together, blessed Lord, who has caused all holy scriptures to be written for our learning, grant that we may in such wise hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, that by patience and comfort of thy holy word, we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life, which thou hast given us in our Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. Now, the uh, idea here is not to be sort of a kind of a lot of opinions, which I have and you have, and we all have different opinions about these kinds of issues but it really is an attempt to look at the question of human identity in light of, uh, in light of the New Testament understanding of what a, a human being is and what constitutes identity. Now, it's a big issue in the world today. I don't need to tell you. Uh, it's often called the balkanization. Thank you so much. Thank you. Um, are there some amphetamines in it? No. Oh, sorry. Uh, there, uh, it's um, it's uh, very... Um, um, it's a huge issue in the world today um, about uh, the identity of different groups and races, and we we hear expressions like the balkanization of the world, which is into tribes and groupings, and this is the wave of the future. But um, it's also a question that is very much at the heart of every uh, talk show that is ever broadcast uh, and every interview you know, what, is, what does it mean to be an American? What does it mean to be someone of uh, Finnish descent? What does it mean to be a woman today? What, is it, what does it really mean to be uh, any number, to be successful? What, what does it say about your identity if, if you really aren't successful in your chosen area? Uh, what does it mean to be um, divorced at a young age? Uh, what does that mean about your uh, your future and your past and what you carry into the world. Uh, these are all enormously uh, big issues. What does it mean to be single but looking? Or to be single and uh, like Dionne Warwick, you'll never fall in love again. What does it mean to be to want to have children but not uh, be in a position to have children? What does it mean to have children and to wish in one sense that you didn't? Uh, and that can happen at various stages of the equation. Uh, <laughs> All the different things that are identity issues are of great significance. And um, I'm going to give three uh, uh, propositions, which I'm going to give each Sunday. And next week will be gender. Today is social class. And I'm going to talk about these three propositions, which I believe are the essence of the New Testament idea of identity. And then we're going to read a passage from the book of Romans. And I'm going to end up by um, discussing uh, a seen in the book Pride and Prejudice by Jane Austen and conclude with a kind of a, 
a, a kind of a, 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 an invitation to think more deeply, you might say, about social class. Now, um, the three propositions of the course, this class, are number one is that human identity doesn't exist. That's a debatable proposition, uh, and not everyone will agree. But the first proposition is that human identity, on its own terms, is a fiction. And I'll explain what I mean. The second proposition, if it did exist, or if it does exist, it deserves damnation. It deserves damnation by its very uh, idea of assertion. That human identity, if it did exist in humanly identifiable terms, would, would merit in biblical terms, damnation. Now, that's a very, very strong statement, but I'll be glad to back it up. And thirdly, that identity is 100% a gift. That identity, if it exists at all, is 100% the gift of God. Now, those are very strong statements, and I'm going to talk about them briefly in light of um, Bible ideas, and then we're going to go to St. Paul, where he talks about the essence of human identity in a way that is quite counterintuitive and dissonant with contemporary ideas of identity. And obviously, you know, you have to, what does the world tell you about your identity? I mean, what does the world tell you? You know, the world puts everyone here in some kind of a classification. And that classification is whether you like it or not. Very often it's not the real you. Very often people think of you as different from what you actually are. I've had so much experience in my early years in New York City with women who were considered extremely beautiful, who were models and so forth, who would come to our church. But if you talk to them about the way they saw themselves, even physically, they did not see themselves as beautiful. In very, very rare cases did, was their beauty not founded on tremendously high levels of anxiety and insecurity. Or I would often meet men who gave off the appearance of being very, very successful, and other people would say, oh, him. You know, he lives out in Greenwich with his beautiful wife and his beautiful children and da-da-da-da-da-da, and uh, that's the way, uh, you know, and, and that's not at all what was true. The person actually uh, felt himself, for all sorts of other reasons that weren't given out to people, to be a failure in many ways. The marriage was much rockier than it appeared. The children were on much less of a clear foundation than it looked. And I've spent so much of my life in communities where people projected huge projections on other people that uh, it's been clear to me that human identity is a, a projection. So he says, I, I, my first point is that, that human identity doesn't exist. Um, that uh, it's basically a projection of other people on you, and, uh, these proje and you project it on other people. And the irony is it really doesn't exist. Um, if you really want to one of the strengths of the city of Birmingham, this is a sociological comment, is that um, it did, did not have an antebellum uh, class structure. Now, now, why did the city of Birmingham not have an antebellum? Antebellum refers to agrarian life supposedly in the South prior to 1861. Why, is it, why does Birmingham not have an antebellum social structure? Because it wasn't founded before the war. So unlike um, Savannah, which has an antebellum social structure. Now, Birmingham has other things that you could call about social structure, but you couldn't say that it has a social structure primarily based on genetics. A little bit, but not primarily. 
It would be based on other things. But what you find out in life, uh, you read Midnight in the Garden of Good and Evil, uh, you read anything by John Grisham, and you discover that uh, social class is really very often a chimera, that the people that supposedly have it don't really have it, the people that have it don't even live where you think they live, and uh, the people that give off vibes of being in the insider track have only been in the insider track for 15 years or one generation. <clears throat> now, every so often you go to a country like England and you meet people who appear to be, you know, they have hyphenated names and they appear to have come from, you know, the Earl of da-da-da-da-da-da. But, you know, um, none of that's true. If you actually meet the people and find out about them, and often they're very, very snooty, um, very often their, their, their bloodlines are very, very compromised because they were so running out of money around 1880 that they couldn't keep up their big houses, so they were required to marry the daughters of rich uh, Pittsburgh uh, coal, uh, rich coal, coal interests. Most Amer uh, English uh, country houses that are still going strong are entirely so because of the influx of foreign money. Almost all of them, with almost no exceptions. If you actually find out who really fuels Blenheim Palace, it's pre-tax Vanderbilt money from this country, or now it's a little bit of Arabian money, you know? Um, so uh, the most beautiful house I know of in England uh, is a Saudi-owned house, uh, because nobody in England, because of their tax structure, could possibly afford to keep up this mega house. The average English aristocrat really lives in what's called a bedsit, which is a little uh, private bedroom and a kind of a sitting room with a grating heater in the extreme remote recesses of a house that, that 5,000 people, it's too big for 5,000 people, but the actual person whose family supposedly owns it is living in a back room with a little one-bar heater and an income of, you wouldn't believe it. Now, what you find out in England or in France or in uh, Italy or in this country is that social class is very fluid. It uh, changes all the time, and uh, it's uh, uh, very um, elastic, and uh, uh, adventurers have taken over, and very often bloodlines are no mere, near as um, uh, pure as they appear. And that's the plain experience of living, and all you need to do is read any novel by Edith Wharton or by Anthony Trollope, or by Theodore Dreiser, for that matter. And you'll see the fluidity of social class. And you know that I'm referring there to the American tragedy. Dreiser's a powerful novel of a man who comes from, quote, nothing, really nothing, and wants everything and gets it. But he only gets it uh, by means of a uh, uh, not very well hidden murder. And that uh, particular uh, book is the definitive book probably on the American so-called class system. So um, it doesn't exist, even if it, you think it does. That's my first thing. Social class really is a projection of other people. And if you're inside it, you soon find out that it's very, very fluid. Second point, if it did exist, it would deserve damnation. Why? Because it would inevitably lead to two things. Self-righteousness on the part of those who supposedly have it, and despair on the part of those who want it but don't have it. Uh, that would be what it would, uh, that would be the, if it did exist, it would basically be um, a, a rallying cry of people of similar class 
to exclude those who don't have it, and those who do have it would look down their noses at those who don't have it, and those who don't have it would look with hatred on those who do. And this is the origin of the Russian Revolution. Right? It's the origin of what happens to all stratified, all heavily stratified uh, countries. All fall down. It's, there are no exceptions in the history of the world, except America at this point, but give us a few generations and who knows. Uh, and we have a very fluid, we are very fluid, if the truth were known, about social class in our world, in this country. So even if it did exist, you would have basically, does anyone remember the character in Pride and Prejudice? I have to admit, I, I have a natural, uh, I, I've always detested Jane Austen. Uh, you, what do you mean? How can you say such a thing? Uh, I just assumed it was just a girly sort of thing. And I just couldn't read it. I mean, to me, it was only the people who liked Jane Austen were sort of girls. And it, was, it always struck me as being, I just couldn't identify with it. But I was wrong. I'm wrong about that. I, you knew that already, right? It took me a while to find out. I was wrong. But there is a, and I'm going to talk about that. There's a character named Lady Catherine de Burr who represents the worst swing of self-righteousness in the part of a so-called upper-class person. And everybody in this novel is basically um, either fawning over her or basically can never reach her. And, and she ends up bitter, alone, and entirely uh, the uh, victim of her own uh, self-deception about what's really important. She loses her beloved nephew. Uh, the woman that she believes is an interloper in the class system gets her man, and she is left all alone, completely sitting with an extremely unhappy uh, 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 daughter, uh, sitting in the house while everyone else is happy. So you could either become extremely self-righteous or you could become desperate. I mean, anybody gone to high school recently? <laughs> Just look at the class structure of a high school. It doesn't have to be Mountain Brook High School or Homewood High School. It could be the high school anywhere in this country. Anywhere in this country, there is a rigid class system. And it's all based on projection. It's all based on projection. They're the beautiful girls, and they're the smart girls. You know, and never the twain shall meet, in theory. And all the smart girls, all the smart girls wish they were beautiful. And all the, the beautiful girls, well, they're glad to a point, but they also wish they, could, they were smart. And you, uh, and the guy, and there, you know, I mean, you'd be amazed how the word preppy comes into play in public high schools in uh, in uh, in uh, Detroit. I mean, you'd be amazed how these words, these unbelievable projections. Just watch Buffy the Vampire Slayer, as I never tire of saying you, to see a totally stratified situation. And there's nothing more miserable than being a part of an American high school, because those who don't have it spend their entire four years incredibly miserable, and they will tell you till their dying day. They will tell you to their dying day that I, my time in high school was the worst period of my entire life. And only when I went to college or when I got my own did, I, did somebody really appreciate me for what I had to bring to the equation. Others will say it was the sunrise and sunset of my life. And after the graduation day, uh, it was the absolute, uh, my life, I've never recovered. Just go to a high school reunion. The most beautiful girl in the class, I mean, I won't tell you how bad she looks. And uh, it's, it's just, you're, this is, you're going to discover this. Everybody, what a burden. What a burden to be the most beautiful girl in your class in, at age 17. Um, now, I say that because if it did exist, which we sort of think it does, it would only deserve damnation because it's based on the idea that I define who I am. And if I define who I am, God does not. God has nothing to do with it. And he will inevitably judge anyone who tries to assert his or her own value on its own terms because God will never be mocked. It is simply the case. Call it God, call it the Buddha, call it karma, call it destiny, call it fate, call it serendipity. 
I obviously call it the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. But you can even call it serendipity. And serendipity will have its way with you. Luck will have its way with you. You will never, ever be able to assert your prerogatives and have them last in any kind of clinging, enduring way as a human being. So even if it doesn't exist, but if it did exist, it would deserve damnation. And finally, identity is a gift from God. Now, uh, having said that, let's now look at the scripture. Um, would you join me in reading verse 2 of Romans 4? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. Well, what that means in old uh, theological discourse, it's a very profound idea in old words, is that um, if uh, our a primal ancestor of the Jewish people, he's speaking to Jews here, um, uh, derived his identity by means of anything that he brought to the table, as we say today, he, would have, he does have something to boast about. You know, his hard work, luck, gifts, discretion, endurance, a little bit of false humility, and wisdom. Uh, those are, those, you have something to boast about, but not before God. Before God, all those things have no relevance whatsoever. Before man, of course, but before God, uh, nothing. And that is uh, why all tombstones never list accomplishments. You know, uh, I've never seen a tombstone. I mean, I've seen a few in England, but you know what they always are? You go to those old 18th century churches and they have these unbelievable Jane Austen nine paragraphs of writing about some young girl, a woman who was the wife of the Viscount who died in 1814. And all these words, what in the world? Basically, basically it all says, I miss her a lot. <laughs> That's what it's about. And she was a good mom. That's, you know, or um, she loved me the Viscount of so-and-so of Herefordshire. And, uh, uh, you know, her, her conversation bespoke prudence and elegance and gentility, while at the same time her emoluments revealed a disposition to Christian charitable philosophy. Uh, what it all is saying is she was basically dear. That's what it all is saying. If you go to those, Victoria, those churches in England, you'll see these things. What? Before God, nothing. Before people, there's a lot you can say. There's a lot, everybody here. There's a lot that one can say, you know? He was... Uh, he was misunderstood. <laughs> um, he, he flew off the handle. <laughs> you know, he was an impulsive son of a gun that burned more bridges than he ever built. Uh, all before God, I mean before man, they're true. He uh, got so many honors by the time he was 25. It was, his 30s were a wreck. Um, uh, all these things, before man, yes, but not before God. He then goes on to say, um, verse 5, let's read verse 5. This is the essence of human identity as the Christian religion understands it to be. Then I'm going to say one other thing and then I'm going to uh, ask you to come back at me. Verse 5, together. And to one who does not work but trusts him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is reckoned as righteousness. Well, what that means, it's a lot to be said about that very important verse. It simply says, for the person who brings nothing lasting to the equation, but who uh, understands himself to be a non-acceptable person, the ungodly, who understands him to be a non-acceptable person for whom God uh, has got to take it as it is, his uh, coming to God as a non-acceptable person constitutes righteousness. Let me repeat that. 
him who trusts him who justifies the ungodly. What he means is, the person who trusts God to love him in his being an ungodly as opposed to a boasting person, his coming to God that way is considered by God to be his identity. So what is identity? It's what God gives you on the basis of trust when you have nothing to present. Now this is a very powerful message in the world. At one fell swoop, it demolishes all human attempts to create a CV. It demolishes them. On the other hand, it gives the real human loss and lostness and need of a person the primary emphasis. And it says that God, notice the word justifies the ungodly. Now you see, this was a radical change. And people who say it's not or don't know what they're talking about. Um, there's a great line in a Rod Stewart uh, conf a concert years ago. And he says, I'm now going to sing a song called Baby, I'm Amazed. And if you don't know what this song is about, and if you can't sing along with me, well, I don't know where you've been. <laughs> I, that, that was a strange accent. But it's Rod Stewart. <laughs> basically, if, um, if, if, if people, scholars who misunderstand this verse, are the equivalent of people in the 1970s who, who could not sing along with Baby on the Maze, they are living in a world that is not the real world. What he is saying is the essence of faith is an ungodly person who trusts God. Now, Judaism said the essence of faith is a godly person who trusts God and occasionally blows it, but with a little bit of help and a little bit of hard work, he's ultimately acceptable. He completely turns the idea of what it is to be a human being in one phrase apart. He says that God is one who justifies or decides to accept as lovable a person not who is lovable, but who is unlovable. And in that exchange comes lasting identity, known in the Bible as righteousness. Now that is a major possibility. Now I'm going to give you one example, and then I'm going to open it up. In, I, I'm only bringing this up because uh, I, I'm sort of repentant here, because I've always sort of looked down on Jane Austen as, you know, I just said it was, I just couldn't handle it. Uh, and uh, all these people with high, what do they call those things, those dresses that are high bodices? What? Empire waists, empire waists. I couldn't stand, I, why would they wear those clothes? But anyway, having said it, they, they wore these empire It's very powerful because in the, in the novel, there is a man named Darcy, Mr. Darcy. And Mr. Darcy is uh, pride in the book, pride and prejudice. Mr. Darcy has pride because of his bloodlines and his social standing. And he comes from a very, very uh, well-known and aristocratically connected family. Um, he has great pride in his origins, and he looks down upon everybody. The woman that ends up being the one whose heart uh, he uh, wants so deeply is a woman who has prejudice. She is prejudiced against people like him who think they're better than anybody else. So she, you know, remember what I said about there, there are people in this world who don't like, quote, Mountain Brook housewives, end of quote, and then there are people called Mountain Brook housewives, end of quote. I've never really met these people who are the second category because they all tell me they don't like somebody else. But uh, what, it, what it is is, you, you know, you define yourself, you're either the thing that you think you want to be or you hate that group, whatever group, you choose the group. It's, everybody has a different group they don't like. And, uh, and um, pride is Mr. Darcy, and prejudice is Miss Elizabeth Bennet, who is very prejudiced, although she's got great quality, as we soon find out, she's prejudiced against him. Until his pride comes down, 
as being this rich, well-connected English man. There's no possibility. At the end of the book, uh, he um, repents. He acknowledges that he has been a uh, stuck-up, prideful, um, uh, dismissive, and contemptuous egotist. And he doesn't admit it only. He admits it powerfully and unequivocally. And at one fell swoop, social class turns to love. And I'm going to read what he says. He says uh, what he has to say to Miss Elizabeth Bennett, who he has, because of her mother, he was sort of right about that, and because of uh, her sister, who he thought was very flaky, her younger sister, he dismissed her. He's now repenting of what we would today call social class, but he's doing it in a very profound way. And what happens, you'll notice, he's not going to, he's not only going to say that he did a bad thing, but she's now going to come in with typical uh, human nature and try to say, there, you're being too hard on yourself. What she says in this very old-fashioned English is basically, Mr. Darcy, you're being too hard on yourself. And he says, don't say that. I'm not only being not hard enough on myself, but if you knew the whole truth, it's much worse than you even know. It is a profound moment of a self-disclosure in which he describes himself. Listen to this. They're talking at the very last penultimate scene. He says to her, What have you said of me that I did not deserve? For my behavior at the time had merited the severest reproof, even though your accusations of me were ill-founded. But my behavior was unpardonable. I cannot think of it without abhorrence. And then she says, basically, I hope that we will now have improved in civility, which is basically, you know, old English for saying water under the bridge, no, no problem. And he says, I cannot be so easily reconciled to myself. The recollection of what I then said, of my conduct, my manners, my expressions to you during the whole of that time is now and has been for many months inexpressibly painful to me. Your reproof I will never forget when you said, quote, had you behaved in a more gentlemanlike manner, end of quote. Those were your words, Elizabeth. You know not how they have tortured me because I have now become reasonable enough to allow their full justice. Well, um, what happens to Mr. Darcy is he turns class into an apology. And he basically says, I am sorry for how I saw life. And in that moment, what happens? A powerful love story comes to its fruition. And it's one of the great moments of English literature. Well, I've talked a little bit about social class. I don't believe it exists. I believe it's entirely projection. Secondly, if it did exist, it would deserve damnation because it would involve some form of self-assertion. And it would involve self-righteousness on one group of some sort and unrighteousness in another. When I was in the 60s, um, most of my friends went to a school because of a variety of sociological reasons. Most of my friends went to a school called St. Paul's School in Concord, New Hampshire. At the time, this was considered the highest social school with the exception of a school called Groton of any in the Northeast. All of them, without exception, became cocaine-snorting hippies at Stanford. I said to them, don't go to Stanford, go to where I'm going. They said, no, we want to get out of the Northeast. We hate all that. These were all extremely wealthy, very, quote, well-born people. 
They couldn't get out of there fast enough. They spent the entire next 10 years being cocaine-snorting, hardcore, follow the Grateful Dead hippies who did not want to talk to their brothers, their sisters, their parents, and wanted no one to go to know that they'd ever gone to this particular school. Well, what, if that, what is that if not a huge fiction, whether you're in it or you're not in it? Even if it existed, it would deserve damnation. And I'm sure most of those fellows who are my friends would have said the sad thing is they were damned. And until they woke up to what was really going on, their lives were on complete hold, compounded by cocaine. Number two, number three, human identity is a gift. And it comes from God and sometimes from another person when you adopt a whole new modus operandi, which is to get up in the morning and say, I'm sorry. Now, that's a very strong statement, and I'd love to hear your response.